Well, looking at the story this morning, this is the last recorded story of Noah. Genesis chapter 9. Pick up in verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. You think about this. They've just gotten off the ark. It's taken some time. This chapter takes place over about 300 years. But the Lord has delivered them safe on dry ground, safe and sound. And all the world is going to be repeopled through these three men, Japheth, Ham, and Sheth. And you think of the enormous responsibility Noah had at that point. He's the patriarch, the patriarch of the entire world at this point. The government is resting on his shoulders. He is the preacher, the spiritual leader of all these people. Think of that amazing responsibility. Go on reading, look at verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman. He's a farmer. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine. And he was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. There's something about that, this nakedness of Noah. It makes us wince when we hear it, right? If he just would have said, the scriptures would have just said he was drunk, well, that's one thing, you know, and that's bad. But the fact that he's naked, that he's uncovered, there's something to that. It makes us wince inside of us. It shows us how detestable the Lord views sin. Your natural ability is to wince at that. It's so much greater with the Lord and his detesting of sin. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren about without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine. He had been in a drunken stupor and knew what his younger son, Ham, had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. It's very interesting. He didn't say, Cursed be Ham. He said, Cursed be his son, Canaan. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. 950 years. Uh, that is almost an entire millennium. That's a very long time to live. And I think this is interesting. This man that the Lord used in such great and powerful ways, Noah, he had done so much for this man this man who lived so long, the Lord is pleased to condense everything he wants us to know about this man to roughly five chapters of Scripture out of close to 1,000 years of living. And I find that very interesting. Uh, 1,000 years, five chapters. You know what that tells us? It tells us there's a whole lot about Noah that we just don't know. You think about how many happenings, how many occurrences, how many interactions he had. That man probably had stories for years told his grandchildren and their children, and so on. But the Lord is not pleased to reveal those stories to us. He's pleased to reveal this story to us. Now, why doesn't he reveal the other ones? Because we don't need to know. It's that simple. 
But if he does reveal this story to us, that means there's something from this we need to know. The Lord is giving this to us for a purpose. And you think about this, only God would be so honest. If we were writing a book about one of our loved ones, right, and this little, this little happenstance comes up, we would probably omit this. We'd probably say, no, we'll just, we'll just leave that out. We'll find a more favorable story to tell towards the end of their life. Not that we're more gracious than God. That's not it. It's because their connection with us. We don't want to look bad. So we won't leave, put this story inside there. We would omit this. But God deals with absolutes in an absolute honesty. And he gives us this story. What do we need to know? What do we need to know about this story that the Lord gave us? A few thoughts on that. Turn back a few chapters to Genesis chapter 5 and look at verse 28. Look at verse 28 of chapter 5. And Lamech lived in 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall, what's those words? Comfort us concerning our work, toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, what Lamech is telling us there is this. Everything the Lord records about Noah in this book, it's given for one purpose, just one. That's to comfort us. Who's the us? It's God's people. And make this very, very simple. This can't be overemphasized enough. How do you spot those people? How do I know if I'm one of those people? All those people answer to this one name, sinner. I'm a sinner before God. I can't work out my own righteousness. I can't even take a step toward righteousness. I'm in the hands of a holy and a sovereign God, and I need mercy. My only hope is that Christ died for me. That's it. They're sinners. That's it. That's how you spot these people. Everything that is written about Noah in this book, it's given for one purpose. It's to comfort those people. And that is not just exclusive to Noah. You know, that's every word in this book. If you are a sinner, think about the, the glory of this. There is no bad news for you in this book. This book has nothing bad to say to you. It's all good news. Now, if you're a righteous man, you have the ability to work out your own righteousness. This book has a lot of bad things to say to you. But to a sinner, there's nothing bad in here. It's just comfort and hope and peace in Christ. That's it. And that's the purpose of this teaching of Noah. So if we use this story to uh, tell young people about the dangers of substance abuse, I mean, that's part of it, but that ain't it. That's not comforting. But what this story teaches, it is very, very comforting. Now, I'll give you three things here. Three things that are incredibly comforting about this story. Here's the first point. This story expresses the everlasting quality of God's grace toward his people. Think about that. Everlasting grace, grace that is unchangeable. Once it is given, it never stops. Now you're in Genesis 5. Switch over to Genesis chapter 6. Concept of the flood, the Lord's decision to flood the entire earth, to wipe out all living flesh, it was based on what God saw. What did he see? Genesis 6, and look at verse 5. This is familiar to you. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only, that word is so important, evil continually. I find it very interesting. It doesn't even talk about the outward effects at this point. The outward works, the speech, it simply talks about the heart. And this is what the Lord saw. He looked down on every man, every man. And what he saw that day is the exact same thing he sees today. He looks down on man collectively as a whole, and he sees the thoughts of his heart, not even getting to the works and the speech and things like that. Let's just confine it to the heart. Every imagination of the thought, that natural heart, only evil continually. And the Lord said, I'm going to wipe out this flesh too violent, too evil, too wicked. It repents me I even made them. I'm just going to wipe them all out. And what the world will teach out of this is, except for Noah, right? Except for the eight. Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives. Except for them, they were good people, right? They were righteous people. That's why the Lord saves them. Nope. God saw that the wickedness of man, Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, all together in this exact same boat. What he saw in Noah and his family is what he saw in every other man. But what does the Lord do? Look at this. Look at verse 8. But, there's that grace word, but. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How did he find it? We, uh, you probably do the same thing. When it comes summertime, we take all our winter jackets and we put them away in a winter closet, right? We don't see them all summer. And we bust them out towards this end of the year. And so the other day, I went and got my winter jacket. I put it on and put my hand inside my pocket. You know what I found? 20 bucks. It's a good day. Super good day. Got 20 bucks for lunch, man. That's, that, that's good lunch right there. I wasn't looking for it. Right? I found it when I wasn't even looking for it. Was Noah have any interest in the grace of God? Did he have any interest in finding out Christ? Any interest in knowing God? Any interest in salvation? No. None whatsoever. He was living his life. Doing whatever it is he wanted to do. Pursuing whatever the things he wanted to pursue. He was a rebel against God. He hated God even if he didn't know it. But grace found him. The Lord found him because it had always been the Lord's purpose to save Noah and to save his family. Save them spiritually, save them forever, but also to save them from this great flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. More particularly, God found Noah. The Lord reached out and grabbed Noah. That's what grace is. It is an intervention. And you write this down. If the Lord purposes to send a man to hell, it's very simple how he does it. Nothing. He just leaves that man alone to do what he naturally wants to do. When the Lord saves the man, he intervenes. He reaches out with that arm of sovereignty and he grabs him and he draws him to himself. And this is the record of Noah because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf, because of grace. This is the record. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. This is what he was like. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God. Now, do we need to massage the language here? Well, I mean, he's a just man. He's perfect. He walked with God. But I guess not perfectly because we have this drunken stupor he's in at the end of his life. Do we need to massage this language? Well, just, but not really. Perfect, but not really. No, there is absolutely no reason to massage this language at all. This is the account the scripture gives of the new man in Christ Jesus. This is the new man. 
The Lord saves a man. He gives him a new spirit. He gives him the very spirit of Christ dwelling in him. And when God looks upon that spirit, this is what he sees. He's just. This man does not sin. That new man in Christ Jesus, he does not sin. He's a justified man. And he's perfect. You know what that means? It means whole. He lacks nothing. This is the very spirit of Christ dwelling in this man. And if Christ lacks nothing before his father, the man who that spirit dwells in, he doesn't lack anything either. And he walked with God. Lord saves him. He told him, Messiah, that's all you've got. Your only hope. You're going to be saved. And this is by it. By Messiah, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. No, before I ever taught you a word or spoke to you, you were justified before me because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That was his hope. God told him this. I'm wiping out all flesh. I'm wiping everybody off the face of this earth. I'm going to save you. You go build a boat. And you know what he did? He believed God. Lord told him. He believed God. And he obeyed. That's the obedience of faith. What is the call? The call is this. Come to Christ. Believe on him. Trust him. Look to Christ alone. Trust his death. Trust his righteousness. That's the only way you can possibly come. Look to him. That's the call. And when the Lord makes that call effectual, what does the man do? He obeys. It's the obedience of faith. We come to Christ. We believe on him. Noah believed God. And you know what he did? He built a boat. He built a boat to the exact specifications the Lord gave him. He did it before one drop of rain ever fell on this earth. All that while, just building this boat and everyone mocking him. What are you talking about? What's rain? What is this? What's a boat? It's this right here. And the Lord said, get in. And he got in by faith. The Lord sealed him up. And what a beautiful picture of Christ. That rain came down. Those floods came up. And it wiped out everybody on the earth. All that death, all that destruction, it was all just. And the ark took the brunt of those waves and that rain for Noah and his family and brought him to the other side, safe and sound, on the shore. What a wonderful picture of Christ and his church. It doesn't get any better than that. And then what happens? And then he plants a vineyard. And he gets drunk. And he loses control of his faculties so bad that he becomes naked in some sort of strange way. Why? Because that old man of sin was still there. He was given a new man, just, perfect, walked with God. But you know what was still there? That old, wretched, defiled nature. And you know what? He carried that to the very day he died. When the Lord's dealing with a man, he's a sinner by birth, born with that fallen, evil, sinful nature. When the Lord saves that man, he gives him something new. That old nature doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't change. It still rears its ugly head. It still doesn't believe God. It still rebels against God. And here this old man is rearing up his head against God. Yes, he had a new man. He was just and he was perfect. That new man in Christ Jesus always is. But that old man, he was still there and he was still so very lively. Now, here's comfort in all this. This is my point. What Noah did was wrong. It was disgusting. It was despicable. There was absolutely no justification for it whatsoever. He was without excuse. But thank the Lord for this. Did it change his standing of salvation and redemption before God at all? Not one iota. The long-enduring grace of God to his people. Why? Why didn't it change his eternal standing with God? For this reason. 
because his eternal standing before God was not based on him and what he did, because nobody would be accepted if that was the case. His eternal standing before God was based solely on this, Jesus Christ. His death, his righteousness, his thankfulness, his faithfulness, his redemption was based, that eternal redemption was based on Jesus Christ and nothing more. And as long as Christ is accepted before his Father, God's people will always be accepted before his Father. Eternal redemption has been secured, and it is an eternal redemption that we can't send away. We can't mess this up. This is the best possible case for us. You can't mess this up. If you're one of his, you're one of his, and he's going to have you one way or the other. That's just the way it is. That being said, we should be very, very careful about our conduct as we walk through this world, shouldn't we? Very careful. I thought of two reasons. Now, if you are like me, I have a lot of people that I love. People who do not know Christ, particularly my children. And at this point in my life, and I think I'm being honest when I say this, if I could have anything, according to the Lord's will, anything, Lord save my kids. That's what I want, right? And I know that if the Lord does save them, it will not be because I was a shining example of them, because I put on a good show and didn't mess up or anything like that. It will only be because God loved them, Christ died for them, and his grace is irresistible and invincible. That's it. But that being said, with every opportunity I'm given, I want to point them to Christ. With every single opportunity. I want to preach the gospel to them. I want to make sure they're at services. To do that and for them to take me seriously, I'm going to have to have some credibility. And you think about Noah at this time. Noah had this great position of leadership. He was the ruler of the entire world at this point. He was a spiritual leader. He was the preacher. And while Shem and Japheth, they never saw his nakedness. They never saw this stupor because they went in backwards. That sin was covered the entire time. They never actually saw it. They knew about it. They knew about it. And they never told anybody. And they never talked about it. But in the back of their head, they knew about it. And when Noah was preaching to them, I bet it was hard to listen to. I bet they'd lost some trust and respect. He had lost some credibility with his boys. Right? So, if I'm going to lead my family, if I'm going to preach the gospel to my kids, I'm going to have to have some credibility. I want to conduct myself in a good way that I have that credibility with them. And this is not me just pontificating. This is scriptural. Listen to this. 1 Peter 3.1 says, Likewise, you wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, the Lord hasn't saved them. They also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Right there. You may win them over just by them saying, she fears God. Look at the way she's treating me. Look at these things. There's an interest there. I want to hear what she's hearing right there. I'm, I want to go to service. I want to hear what she's got right there. That's scriptural right there. Here's the second reason we should be very careful about our conduct as we walk through this world. This is what Paul said. 2 Corinthians 6.3, he said, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Here's what Paul is saying very, very simply. You act up, you act out in an unwholesome way. Those people who know you, they know who your God is. 
They know what you believe and who you believe. They're not going to blame you. They're going to blame him. And they're going to blame his message. This man says he looks to Christ. This man says he's looking to Christ for everything in his salvation, that he's bringing absolutely nothing to the table. This man is hoping to be received on the wings of free and sovereign grace. Look where it got him. Look where it got him. Look at this rebel right here. Look how he's acting. That's what grace will get you right there. People won't be in line. Paul says be very, very careful not to offend because they're not going to come after you. They're going to come after your master. And his name is too great. It is too high. It is too holy to be blasphemed. That's why we should be very, very careful about our conversation. But as for this thing with Noah, thank the Lord for this. This made absolutely no change in his eternal standing because he was justified by Christ. Now the second thing here is this. This incident that involves Ham and Shem and Japheth, this is a beautiful picture of law and grace. Now go back to your text in Genesis 9. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 of Genesis 9. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now go down to verse 24. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now, like I said to you before, this is very interesting. Who exposed the sin? Ham's wrong here. Ham is worse off than Noah at this point. He's exposing his father and all his sin. Ham does the exposing, but yet who does Noah curse? He curses his son. The one who was under Ham is the one who was cursed. In all this, Ham is an interesting example of God's holy law. What did he do? He looked in. He saw Noah in the drunken stupor, saw him in his nakedness. He reported what he saw. He exposed what he saw. Who was cursed? He who was under Ham was cursed. Them that are under God's law are cursed. Now, I want you to look at some things with me about the law for a moment. Turn over to 1 Timothy 1. All these are going to be very familiar scriptures to you, more than likely. So if you just want to hear me read them, that's fine as well. But if you want to look at these, Paul has some interesting things to say here. 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 8. Paul says, but we know that the law is good. Nothing cursed about the law. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men steals, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, Paul opens with this statement, the law is good. The law is good. There's absolutely nothing cursed about the law. The law is good. The law is beautiful. The law declares the character of God and the perfection of God's standard. What will God accept? 
What will he accept? What must I be? What must you be for me to be accepted by God? I must be in perfect conformity to God's holy law. He is a God who loves righteousness and he hates evil, wickedness, iniquity. It declares how holy, how just, how righteous God really is. There's nothing wrong with God's holy law. It's beautiful. It declares the glory of God. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the law, not cursed in any way. But Paul says this, law is good if a man use it lawfully. If there is a lawful use of the law, there is also an unlawful use of the law. Now, what is the lawful use of the law? This is what Paul says in Romans 3.20. I'll read it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is the singular purpose of God's holy law. Only has one purpose. That's it. It exposes sin. That's the only thing it does. Just as Ham stood there, he looked inside. He saw Noah's nakedness. He saw his drunkenness. And he reported on the sin that he saw. Ham is wrong, but as a type of the law, that's exactly what the law does. It simply sees the truth. It reports on what it sees. That's it. That's the only thing the law does. Now, what is the lawful use of the law? Listen to this. This is Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Every man as he's born in this world is born under this law. And this law says the same thing to every natural man. You're guilty. You're guilty from birth. You have violated me with your very first cry. That law looks at every man, natural man, and he says, you are guilty. You know what the lawful use of the law is? To agree with it. I'm guilty before God. I've sinned away all my rights. I've got no claims on God. I'm in the hands of a sovereign, and I am shut up to mercy. Mercy I don't deserve. What does the law say about every man? That he's guilty. And this is the lawful use of the law to agree with the law. I'm a guilty sinner before God. Now, if that is the lawful use of the law, to agree with what it says, then what is the unlawful use of the law? What did Paul say? He said the law was not made for a righteous man. What's he saying there? He's saying if a man could attain to righteousness by the do's and don'ts of the law from trying to keep it, he wouldn't need a law in the first place. He would be upright. He would be innocent. He would have a righteous nature. He would simply obey his nature. He wouldn't need a law. The law was not given for a righteous man. Who was it given for? For sinners. The law was never given as a mechanism of salvation. The do's and don'ts of the law. Lord, here's my best. Here's my best efforts at keeping your law. The deeds of the law, I've brought them before you. This is why you should save me. Here's everything I've done. It's never the purpose of the law. And no man can attain to righteousness in that respect. Paul said this. He used an interesting phrase. I read it to you. He said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Deeds of the law. What are the deeds of the law? It's anything. Any mechanism 
of salvation, any proposition of salvation that says, God will if you fill in the blank. And you fill in the blank with whatever it may be. God will save you if you accept Jesus Christ and you allow him to be your personal savior. Deed of the law, right there. God will save you if you stop sinning and you try real hard to never sin again. You feel real bad about it, and then you try real hard never to do it again. As long as you're more successful than not, you'll be okay. Deed of the law. That's salvation by works. That is the unlawful use of the law. Approaching God based on your deeds of the law. Anything I do, says, Lord, you should accept me because I. That's a deed of the law. That's an unlawful use of the law. Now, there is no salvation in that. Turn to Galatians 3 for a moment. Through these verses, Paul shows us there's absolutely no salvation in the law, in the deeds of the law. Galatians 3, and look at verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law, same as deeds of the law, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, Paul's giving a warning here, saying if you approach by this manner, if you approach by the law, Lord, save me because I fill in the blank. Understand this, you are on your own. He who continues in all these things, if you approach by the law, you are a debtor to do the entire law. That means every thought, every intention, every act of the will, every imagination, Every word, every act, all day, every day, must be in perfect conformity to God's holy law. If you are going to come this way, coming by the law, by the deeds of the law, understand this, you are on your own. You are a debtor to do the entire law. Now, look at verse 11. Just so he can squash this and put it to bed. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it's evident. It's evident. No man can come this way. No man can keep the law. And the truth of the matter is this, and only believers understand this, I've never once kept the law. No man has ever once kept the law. Somebody says, I've never murdered anybody. I mean, I've kept the first one. The simple fact that I have ever thought ill of another human being, I have murdered their character. I have broken God's holy law. Somebody says, I've never cheated on my spouse. Never once happened. For a man to simply look at a woman in lust, he's already done it in his heart. We're lawbreakers. We've done nothing but break God's holy law the entire time with every breath. But I think this is beautiful what he says. He goes, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Everybody's born under the law. Everybody's born under the curse of this law. And this is man's religion. This is the way every natural man comes in some way, shape, or form by the law. But the Lord has a people, a just people, people justified by Christ, and here's how he causes them to approach, by faith. By faith, looking to this one man, to looking to this Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. You know what he's saying here? He's saying law and faith have absolutely nothing to do with one another. 
Law and grace have absolutely nothing to do with one another. Like he said before, if you approach by the law, you're on your own. You are a debtor to do the entire law. If you want to come that way, man says, well, you know, I did my part, and now, you know, the blood of Christ will take care of the rest of it. No, 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 no. There is no mixing of law and grace. You come this way by law, you are on your own, a debtor to do the entire law. But when a man comes this way, truly by the grace of God, when he comes in faith, all faith alone. All my eggs are in this basket. My only hope rests in this one man, Jesus Christ, his death, his righteousness. I've got nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. There's nowhere else to go. I've got no reserves. I've got no plan B. This is the only thing I have. It is my only hope before God that Jesus Christ died for me. That's it. Singular faith. That law and faith, they don't have anything to do with one another. Look at this, verse 13. It speaks of the Lord's people. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Lord's people, we were born under that law by nature. Cursed. We cursed ourselves under that law. But what did he do? He became a curse. He took the curse of his people. He bore it in his body. He went to Calvary, suffering under the wrath of God. And through that death, he put that curse away, never to be seen again. Now we are covered to where God sees nothing but his darling son. Now, if Ham and Canaan represent the law and those who are under the law, surely Shem and Japheth represent grace. Beautiful, wonderful grace. Go back to your text. Look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now consider this illustration. These two boys come in and they take a garment, a mantle is the word, and they wrap it around their shoulders to where it cuts right along here. So Shem's on one side, Japheth's on the other. And they walk in backwards with this garment on Because of the way that garment is put down, they never see their father's nakedness. They never see his drunkenness. As they come in backwards, the whole thing is covered. This is the work of Christ for his people. What did his work do? What did his death accomplish? It covered us. Now, keep in mind, this illustration accommodates our human intellect. This is just things we understand in the human world. Covering something that is filthy... Justification is much, much better. It's not just that he covers my filth. Because here's the thing. Shem and Japheth, they never saw Noah's nakedness, and they never saw his drunkenness. They never saw his sin, but they knew about it. And that thought was always there. But this is the work of Christ. This is how great justification really is. He covers us in this respect. Noah was still dirty under that garment. He makes us clean. Every wit clean, washed by the blood of Christ to where the reality of justification is this. If right now your hope is Christ and him crucified alone, you have no sin. You have been washed clean in the blood of Christ and it is gone. And that garment, that mantle, Christ's righteousness, 
It's not just a robe that we wear on the outside. It's the reality of who we are. This is how close union with Christ really is between him and his church. When he did right before his father, when he kept the law before his father, every member of the elect did as well because we were in him. Not just a robe that cover, covers us, we are righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification is so much better than this. Not just covered, but made whole. Every whit whole. And this is the scripture that applies here. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. It says, And you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. God, that one who sees everything, the discerner of the heart, the one who would never not see sin. It can't hide from him. When he looks at his people right now, as he is, so are we in this world. This is what he sees. He sees nothing but his darling son, his death, his righteousness, and that's it. This is the grace of God. This is the work of Christ for his people. Now, I'll give you this last point. I'll let you go. This story also teaches us what true brotherly love looks like. Now, we use that word, I love you, right? We use that a lot. We express it to people we love. That's great. We should tell people we love them. But love without action is no love at all. Christ loved his church, so what did he do? He gave himself for it. Love without action is no love at all. This is what love looks like. What did Shem and Japheth do? They covered their father. He was naked. He was drunk. There was absolutely no excuse for him whatsoever. And they said, Ham, be quiet. They put that garment on. They wouldn't even look on him. And they walked backwards. And they covered their father's sin. Now, this is my charge. And this is your charge. Right now, in this world, we look to Christ. Look to Christ. Come to Christ right now. Believe on him. And love your brethren. Love them. And this is what Ephesians 4, 3 says. It says, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's what I want. I want peace in my home. I want peace in my church. I want peace with my brethren. How's that peace going to be achieved? A whole lot of this right here. You're going to have to cover me, and I'm going to have to cover you, and that's true love. I'm going to leave you all there. It's been a pleasure meeting with you this morning. Mm-hmm.